Hello and welcome to Strictly Infrastructure, a new podcast focused on the UK's infrastructure industry. Each episode we'll be talking to a leading expert from across the sectors, from housing to highways, energy to airports and everything in between. Hello and welcome to the Camargue podcast, Strictly Infrastructure. My name is Toby Barker and I'm a director at Camargue. Today we're talking about new nuclear and what next for the industry. The UK has a proud history in the arena of nuclear energy generation, with the world's first civil nuclear reactor being opened by Queen Elizabeth way back in 1956. Many stations followed over the next few decades, placing the UK at the forefront of the global industry. But come the 1980s, and it proved challenging for the nuclear industry and public acceptance wavered, and the nuclear disarmament movement shook the industry to its core. But despite that, nuclear power stations were still providing a significant 27% of our energy needs here in the UK and were going about their business safely, efficiently. And by the 1990s, we're now in the hands of the private sector too. By the early noughties, the shoots of recovery were evident. There was a growing realisation that we desperately needed to tackle the existential threat of climate change, while also finding a way to feed the needs of an increasingly power-hungry nation. Fossil fuels were on the way out, renewables were on the way up, and most people realised we needed nuclear energy as part of that mix too. New projects sprung up quickly. EDF got its spade into the ground at Hinkley Point C, which will be the first new nuclear power station in more than 20 years. But as we stand here today, the future is looking a little uncertain, with projects at Cumbria and on Anglesey currently on pause. So joining me today are two of the nuclear industry's leading figures to discuss what's next for nuclear. Welcome to Kirsty Gogan, Managing Partner at the international consultancy Lucid Catalyst and Global Director of Energy for Humanity, a not-for-profit organisation with a global outlook that's focused on solving climate change and enabling universal access to modern energy services. We also have Leon Flexman, who's the Corporate Affairs Director at Horizon Nuclear Power, the Hitachi-owned company that is looking to bring forward a new nuclear power station at Wilverneweth on Anglesey. So welcome both and thank you for, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell me a little, about, little bit about yourselves um, and, and your background. Kirsty, um, welcome aboard. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure. Um, yeah, so um, I guess uh, my background really is um, defined by my work in, in the, in, as an environmentalist, really. Um, I study politics and, um, and work, have worked in government, industry and in the nonprofit sectors, but always with the emphasis really on, on sustainable development and, of course, increasingly over the years on climate change. Um, and sort of as an environmentalist, I guess I was by default anti-nuclear. Um, and it was only really having been given a copy of uh, Professor Sir David Mackay's um, wonderful book, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, as a wedding present, um, that I, um, upon reading that book, began to sort of really um, uh, question the, the assumptions that I've been making, firstly, about um, our prospects for fully decarbonizing the economy with renewables alone. And secondly, um, uh, the sort of assumptions that I'd made about, about nuclear energy. Um, so that was sort of the beginning of my journey at, uh, at uh, looking again at nuclear energy, and I subsequently went on to be um, 
deputy head of strategy running the national public consultation for nuclear new build in the UK, deputy head of civil nuclear security, where I reviewed the national response to Fukushima, and even um, head of communications in the Nuclear Industry Association. Um, so I've sort of I've I've worked across looked across the board really, um, and uh, and then you know left left the industry to set up my own nonprofit um, to make the environmental and humanitarian case for nuclear energy, which which really was um, a sort of gap in the civil society space at the time, that's really increasingly being filled, um, and now a lot of my work is focused on on um, on innovation and cost reduction and really sort of working um, on the transformation that's needed to enable nuclear energy to make a meaningful contribution towards towards solving climate change. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant to um, to have you involved. Clearly, huge depth of experience there. Um, Leon, you and I have worked together for, for a long time, um, but for the benefit of, uh, of our listeners, could you briefly tell everybody who you are and what you do? Yes, I'm Leon Flexman, Corporate Affairs Director at Horizon. And uh, I started out my career wanting to be a journalist um, and did a little bit of um, work in that area. But almost from the get-go, I was starting to get interested in actually working in business or industry and doing something. I can remember one of my journalist tutors saying to me, why do you want to be a journalist? Why don't you go out there and actually work for a company that does something or makes something that's productive and useful? Um, And whilst I think journalism is productive and useful, I did go down that route. And I started off and spent seven or eight years in public relations consultancy. Um, And I I gradually accumulated energy clients while I was there and became fascinated uh, by the sector. And I moved out of London down to to Cheltenham to work for NPower at the time, which had just been privatised from the well, a combination of the Midlands Electricity Board and National Power. I started off in the retail business, actually, which was pretty cutthroat in those days when everybody was scrabbling for market share and trying to figure out, you know, what uh, an actual energy company did other than sell co- a commodity to sort of differentiate itself. But I was really attracted by the power generation side of things because the National Power, you know, one of the big beasts that was came out of the CGB, didn't have nuclear, but had was developing wind farms through its national wind power subsidiary, was still managing the old coal plants and trying to figure out you know, what to do with them, how to phase them out, building gas plants, which at the time we were very proud of because it was halving the carbon intensity of the fleet. Um, and then looking at carbon capture and storage, solar power, the whole kind of gamut, really. We even looked at converting a massive oil-fired power station to palm oil, but abandoned it because of it was just unsustainable. But uh, the big the big ticket item for me was when things started to change in sort of 2005 and, and nuclear came back onto the agenda again. Um, and we were involved in the discussions about how you could facilitate the return of nuclear. Um, and then... It, um, RWE, the German company which owned NPower by that point, did a joint venture with Eon to create Horizon, and I knew immediately that I wanted to be involved in that. And uh, you know, nuclear for me has always been fascinating because of the the massive environmental benefit which has been overlooked in the past, but also the economic potential, the technological excitement, the the opportunity to you know for people to build long lasting, high quality careers around it. And from a professional point of view, also the challenge, the challenges, because it has uh, an awful lot of admirers and supporters, but, you know, famously, a lot of people who are still nervous and concerned about it. So for all those reasons, I, I went and joined Horizon and helped set the company up and moved jump ship when it was acquired by Hitachi. So uh, and I'm still to this day striving to get these nuclear power stations built. And I'm, I'm optimistic we're going to get there, but uh, there's still quite a lot of work to do. 
Fantastic. Well, as uh, as a former journalist myself, who is now a communications consultant, I've had a similar path to Leon and, and Kirsty. From what you've just said, there's an element of poacher turned gamekeeper to your career in some senses as well. So I think the three of us do have that in common. Um, so thanks for introducing yourselves both. Um, uh, so uh, what's what's keeping you busy in your respective roles at the moment? Um, tell us a little bit about um, what your what your days and your weeks uh, uh, hold for you at the moment, Kirsty. Well, of course, you know, as we are right now coming out of lockdown, I've spent the last six months like everybody else working from home. Um, and so rather than sort of traveling around, um, having meetings and attending conferences, we've been very productive in um, pr pr producing a lot of reports actually for publications. So that's that's largely what's keeping me busy. Um, and the sort of scope of those um, is, it ranges from a report that we just published for RPE in the US, um, looking at the uh, contribution that advanced reactors could make in future electricity grids, which has just been an absolutely fantastically interesting piece of work. Um, we, we partnered with uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab, looking at scenarios that they had developed for um, future electricity grids in the 2030s and all the way up to 2050s. And assuming, you know, a lot of renewables penetration into the system and low gas prices, almost all of the sort of high renewable scenarios had a lot of gas still generating on the system into the 2030s and even all the way up to the 2050s. Because, of course, you know, grids that have high penetrations of variable renewables are going to need dispatchable power to balance the grid. So we put we put uh, we modelled the advanced reactors into the system with thermal energy storage, which makes them dispatchable essentially, um, whilst maintaining their really high capacity factors. So in other words, they still generate for sort of ninety plus percent of the time, um, but they have many benefits in the in the grids. Not only um, re actually reducing emissions entirely from the grids by displacing gas, but also actually lowering the overall cost of the system um, for the consumers. And of course, then as well, maintaining reliability. Um, so really interesting findings. And uh, what's what's been wonderful is that we've seen um, uh, Bill Gates through um, TerraPower, his company, just subsequently announced that they're going to be developing uh, projects that do exactly that, that combine advanced reactors with thermal energy storage in order to provide um, emissions-free load-following um, capacity into future energy grids. So, so that's been very cool. Um, and then the other really big sort of topic that's keeping me busy right now is on is on hydrogen. Um, we're about to publish two major reports on the potential for um, very low cost, very large scale hydrogen production through the application of advanced heat sources um, combined with um, with thermochemical electrolysis. Um, that that's the kind of real passion for me at the moment because when we look at uh, future energy use that's forecast by really all the mainstream projections, IEA, EIA, DNB, BP, you name it, they're all assuming that around 50% of our energy um, is going to come from fossil fuels by 2050. And that's because um, liquid fuels are really hard to decarbonize. We just do not have a credible, viable, cost competitive pathway for liquid fuels right now. And I think that hydrogen produced from advanced heat sources is going to play a really incredible role. So I'm excited to launch those those reports in the coming weeks as well. 
Fantastic. I mean, the the the, the phrase you used, used there was cost competitiveness, um, and uh, uh, I'm sure Leon, that's probably something which, uh, in looking at your work uh, at the moment, is probably a, a theme that that comes up quite a lot with what you're trying to do at the moment. Yes. Yeah. I mean, cost competitiveness, whether you're talking about producing alternative fuels like hydrogen or just straightforward electricity. And that's the uh, I mean, that that's the the big issue that we have to solve with nuclear, not that it's cost, whether it's cost competitive over the long term. You look at the large scale nuclear that rose right in front of us now that we, we want to get away next. Um, over the long term, it is highly cost competitive, but it is these upfront capital costs that you have to deal with. And that's the reason why, you know, I mean, over the last year, um, there's been we've suspended our activities at Horizon while we've um, tried to address this the f- the funding model that will actually enable us to actually get these power stations built and in the same time bring those costs down. So there's been an awful lot of work. I've been I've been splitting my time between the Nuclear Industry Association and Horizon over the last year, um, looking at ways in which we can uh, effectively deliver this the next generation of large scale nuclear power stations at a cheaper cost. And a lot of that is down to the um, the actual constructors, the companies building the power stations, you know, repeating designs, uh, effectively, you know, learning from lessons from the past. The more the more you do this, the same construction process, the more you can learn and get more efficient and bring the costs down and tackle those capital costs. But the flip side of that is a huge percentage of the cost of a nuclear power station project is actually down to the cost of the money, borrowing the money and the interest rates, et cetera, that you have to, um, that in- investors will look for a high rate of return to pay back the fact they put a lot of money in early and don't see a return for a long time. But you don't have to do it that way. And ev- everyone is pretty much of a mind now to change the way you finance nuclear power stations, which will bring the cost down for the customer and then bring in more investors as well and get these things built. So um, that's what I've been working on. And, uh, and I think, you know, we've got a, a, a strong prospect of actually having nuclear enshrined in energy policy going forward, but exactly what that looks like, we don't know yet. So we're waiting to um, you know, to actually come to a conclusion, hopefully in the relatively near future, that will enable us to plan and get on with these things. And of course, uh, you're looking forward to um, the end of this month when uh, the Secretary of State will uh, be making his decision on the DCO um, application, which is uh, which is in as well. So um, presumably a, a busy end to 2020 for, for you, hopefully. Yeah, so that's that's a big ticket item for Horizons projects on Anglesey. We, you know, when we suspended activities, we deliberately kept going the things that would enable us to restart quickly because it was never a case of, stopping the project entirely it was a case of okay let's put things on hold but we'll retain all the knowledge that we need to actually restart we'll retain a core team of people so we can remobilize and manage the ongoing relationships with stakeholders etc and the key licenses and permits that we would need the main the big one is obviously a development consent order it's a 40 odd thousand page document years of work and so we kept that we've kept that live it's been the actual determination of it has been delayed twice as as you know toby um Partly, you know, for for whatever reason, more information required, etc. But it's come in the middle of first Brexit, then you know, first the general election, then Brexit, then the COVID pandemic, etc. And there's been a you know little government bandwidth to consider some of these decisions. So we're hoping that uh, this time at the end of September we will get a determination. It is a, a great project, and we think it's a good application. But in and of, of itself, that won't signal a restart for the Wilver project. Um, but it will enable us to restart if we get this fu- funding model sorted out, and um, and then we are ready to you know to go again. 
Indeed, I think we're all um, hoping that uh, the, the consent comes along um, at the end of this month. And, and as you say, that's that's not the same thing as, as putting the, uh, the finances in place. I mean, what are the, the main challenges that, that you're facing, Leon? And I know you can't really say too much because presumably your, your conversations with, with government and others are, are commercially confidential. But, but what are the, the main challenges? I mean, you've talked about cost. You've talked about um, trying to encourage people to understand that once you start being building um, uh, that you can bring cost efficiencies into the second time and the third time and the fourth time that you do any one thing. And I know the EDF guys are already showing that at Hinkley, aren't they, where where they're saying there have been savings on uh, between, I think, unit one and unit two, and, and they're already starting to, to show real examples of, of how there can be savings. I mean, what are, the, what are the other challenges that you're finding, both in terms of your conversations with government, perhaps your conversations with investors, and also in terms of public acceptance? Well, I think, I mean, starting with your last point there on public acceptance, it's um, w- when I came into the nuclear industry, I thought I was going to be, you know, fighting a battle to get people on side with what we we're trying to do. But in fact, it's been it's been com- the complete opposite. I've never worked on a project that's been more well supported than than the Wilvin Earth power station, both by the local community because they're used to it, um, we're having had a power station on the doorstep, and then they understand nuclear and the benefits it can bring, and then more nationally because. You know, more and more of the of environmental, um, you know, uh, environmentalists are realizing that, that the good that nuclear can do for climate change, uh, but actually the the, cha- the big challenges are, as we were discussing earlier, is is the cost. How do you make sure that the cost is actually competitive, so that you're not, um, you know, putting too much of an unnecessary burden on on the customer? And as you know, as far as our specific project is concerned, um, we think we've got an awful lot going for us the, the, because the much like the, um, uh, the, the the case for building reactors in series, um, Hitachi has built four of these things and commissioned them on time and on budget before. So really for us, it's about adapting that to, to continue that success in the UK. I sometimes use the analogy that is probably not a very sophisticated one. It's a bit like building, if you've got six dining room chairs you buy from ikea you know building the first one <laughs> assembling the first one takes a while but by the time you get to the sixth one you're absolutely flying and that's that's really where we think we'll be with the with the abwr on a slightly more complex basis but uh you know that we've got that we know what the design is we know what the actual project construction looks like we've made great progress on the licenses and permits we've got the construction team on board including you know the best nuclear operators to support our development of the operating team and, and the best global constructor that's built 170 nuclear power stations before so all of that is in good shape um really it's just down to the fact that Hitachi is the only investor currently and has already spent over two billion pounds on a project we can't go any further until we know that there's a financing model that will get it fully funded so that does involve the um, the um you know decisions from government because nuclear power stations are you know, a strategic benefit to the nation. Therefore, it's a legitimate conversation, really, to say, okay, what role is the government going to play versus the private sector? So, getting that balance right and maintaining public support as we do so is the is the the objective. I think it's always struck me as slightly unfair, and this perhaps might be a slightly naive thing to say, but um, you talked about it as being you know strategic public infrastructure, and you know, if you look at another example of that, like for example HS2 or something like that, the government wouldn't expect a private developer to to bring that forward and and, and finance it wholly wholly on its own, and and it, it always seems slightly odd to me that perhaps nuclear doesn't fall into a, a similar category, but I, I appreciate it's a rather simple way of looking at things. Yeah, I think I mean I'm, it's difficult to, um, to to argue with the fact that if you've got if you've got something um, that is potentially delivering 
environmental benefits, you know, when the government's policy is to hit net zero by 2050, delivering economic benefits, particularly in regions where you don't necessarily, you know, get a lot of economic activity through big infrastructure investments, and it's maintaining security of supply. And, you know, the the, uh, Climate Change Committee has said we need a significant proportion of power going forward to be coming from firm power, not just, you know, renewables. So with all of those priorities, it's, it's hard to argue that the government doesn't have a role in setting the right framework for it. But equally, you know, you're, you're coming off the a background of privatisation in the electricity industry that goes back to the 1990s, and and with a lot of momentum behind that kind of, uh, you know, orthodox view that the it can be taken into the private sector. So I think people mm-hmm. are realising now that that nuclear power stations have to be done in partnership between the government and investors. It's not something you can just outsource. Yeah. What's your view on that, Kirsty? Yeah, thanks. I th- I think I mean I agree with that, of course. Um, and I guess I would add a couple of things. I mean, this the um, it's it's definitely time now to review how um, these major infrastructure projects are financed. It, it's sort of a little outdated because the decision for government not to provide more financing arrangements ca- came out of the coalition agreement, which is a bit out of date. Um, so yes, it's time to review that. And absolutely, um, it doesn't make sense really for for the consumer. Um, to be paying a much higher level of, of interest than is necessary if it's possible to to finance it um, more cheaply. Um, but the other really important piece of um, of development I think that there's been is understanding much more about what really drives the cost of these um, these these construction projects. Um, we published a report through the Energy Technologies Institute. Um, on nuclear cost drivers, and we sort of started asking by asking the question: Why is it that nuclear power plants are being delivered around the world today for half or even a third of the cost that we're seeing first of a kind projects being delivered in America and in Europe? Um, and uh, the clues in the question there, because really these first of a kind projects that are being built um, in Europe and the United States are, are first of an inner generation projects, they're first in country projects, and you know the consequence of that is a, a requirement for a really significant investment in establishing skills and capability within the supply chain, within the labor force, within the project leadership teams, and even also with the regulator as well. And so the investment that's been made in the UK to build two units at Hinkley Point C represents an enormous investment in UK capability um, across all of those different stakeholder groups, all of those different actors that are contributing towards those those builds. And although we'll We'll be building a different design um, at Wilver. We'll still be benefiting enormously from that investment that's been made um, across across the labour force, across the supply chain, across the regulator, and then coupled with the you know very deep experience um, and um, and success really in the from the Japanese perspective as well in in design completion and very efficient approaches to. Um, to construction um, with a lot of modularization, for example, we, we really ought to start to be able to have a lot more confidence in the budget and the construction duration um, plans. Um, and so all of that really represents a reduction in risk and mm. you know, that, uh, the construction risk that is a part of what drives the cost ultimately in, in determining the, the cost of capital. Um, so if you can reduce the, the construction risk, have more confidence in budget, more confidence in schedule, and, all, and ultimately seek to reduce the overall construction schedule, then you're starting to make a really, a really you know, compelling 
proposition for a, you know, a, a substantial cost reduction on the first of a kind project that we've already seen being built in the UK. So long as, you know, we're, we're, we're supporting that, that development. We've seen that really successfully demonstrated through the offshore wind program where mm-hmm. through consistent access, access to sustained finance and consistent build, we've, we've seen the programmatic effect essentially um, drive down costs combined with, you know, really concerted and, and determined commitments to cost reduction from the offshore industry. But mm-hmm. it really shows that those cost reductions can be achieved over time. And there's really no reason why we can't do that in the nuclear sector as well. Yeah, it's I hear a lot of people, you know, commenting as though it's a sort of happy accident that costs have come down in renewables or some just sort of magical development mm. that means that they'd suddenly become super cheap but it was due to decades of concerted effort you know yeah. in a inside a framework that government established and exactly and actually having a competitive procurement process like we've had in the offshore wind sector has also contributed really significantly to driving down costs and there's no reason why we couldn't apply that same model in the nuclear sector as well um you know i'd like to see to see you know if governments for example called on you know a certain number of gigawatts starting at a certain price reducing over time you know and have and have companies come forward um there's there's really no reason why we can't start achieving um costs that have been achieved not only in in are being achieved in asia today but have also been achieved historically in, in the united states and in europe as well through through a program of build but presumably um we have a relatively finite window in terms of of that skills base that we've built up in the uk um through uh through edf and, and hinkley c um and that as happened before you know that those skills will start to, to dissipate so surely there is a, a window that we need to kind of pounce on now if we're to make the most of that 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 kind of upskilling that that has has come around in the domestic market if we're not going to allow it to to kind of drift away again and, and we end up back where we started in in kind of having to to build up the the skills base and the supply chain domestically almost from scratch again that's exactly right. I think, it's, I think it's actually an even bigger um, issue uh, or opportunity, depending on how you see it, that, than the way you characterise it, Toby, because it's not just about a short window of opportunity. It's also about um, if we do progress with you know significant programme of large-scale nuclear and then SMRs, et cetera, um, then we're going to need an awful lot of um, more skilled workers you know, than we've currently got. At the moment, where the supply chain is relearning how to build new nuclear, and that's fantastic. And as Kirsty says, everybody will be able to capitalise on that. But if you get a lot of big, these major construction projects it's the same with all big infrastructure projects happening simultaneously. Then there's a, a kind of limited pool of resource on which we have to draw, and we have to make sure that you know, we can get the right skilled work workers from overseas if we need them to fill in the gaps as we grow our own, uh, you know, workforce and supply chain. But the key thing with this is, I, you know, I've been in the industry not for a vast amount of time, but for long enough to have seen a number of attempts to get the kind of program based approach together within the nuclear industry and. Uh, also associated with the infrastructure industry so you can do some sort of long-term planning and it's always founded because there's never been a, okay this is the program of, of nuclear projects this is how many we think are going to be happening you know when it's going to be happening when they're going to be happening and how we can actually then work together to, to coordinate that so yeah you know, it's, it, people say there's a, a sort of supply problem in terms of skills but there's really a demand problem if we can spell out what the demand is over the long term then you yeah. can plan around it and the nuclear industry historically has been fantastically good at that but when you're just looking at projects in a sort of atomized pardon the pun you know one, one at a time way it's impossible and you never know what's going to happen next you can't and, do it 
Leon, there's that's such a good point, and there's there's an additional dimension here, which is you know, which is our 2050 decarbonisation target, net zero targets. Mm. Um, the Committee on Climate Change has indicated that we might need anything from 30 to 60 gigawatts of firm, clean, dispatchable power to complement, you know, what will be the lion's share of of, of renewables on the system. Um, so even if nuclear was only to deliver, say, half of that, 30 gigawatts by 2050. That represents really about a gigawatt per year being built between now and 2050. And, you know, putting it into that kind of context, I think, really, you know, isn't is an important frame within which we, we should be thinking about, you know, well, actually, what kind of scaling up in, cap- in terms of capability and investment um, and sequencing really is going to be needed if we're serious about meeting those targets. And that's the sort of perspective that I think the renewables industry has actually been incredibly successful at. At, at, at sort of really sort of taking uh, taking a responsibility for and investing in and being very ambitious in its in its uh, goals and it's interesting that the nuclear industry has less of that sort of future focus culture um, and I think that's partly a result actually of the fact that the that the assets are so long, they operate for such a long time. So we've become a sort of a culture of operators rather than a culture of builders. And so there really does need to be more investment in, you know, people like you, Leon, that are sort of thinking about, you know, how to actually deliver new projects and how to scale up the delivery in a meaningful way. I mean, one thing which is very interesting to me is that there seems to be a, uh, a whole number of influences that are converging right now to to help to make that case. Um, as, as you said just now, Kirsty, we've, we've got to work towards net zero by, by 2050, um, and we need a significant amount of, of nuclear base load power to, to reach that. Um, at the same time, I've been fascinated by the emergence over recent years of, of the importance of hydrogen within a, um, uh, a decarbonized network. Um, and of course, you know, as we sit here and talk today, we're, we're, we're in, a, in a, a bit of an economic downturn caused by, by COVID-19. Um, and so the need to invest and to, to get infrastructure markets moving um, can, can help on that front uh, as well. So it, it feels like there, there, there is a, an opportunity that we can, we can grab now to um to try and make that case but um i did just want to talk about hydrogen um for a couple of minutes because it's something that um perhaps wasn't as much in the the the, the public consciousness even perhaps five years ago but it's now something that we're we're really seeing coming forward and i wonder if uh, if you could explain to me the the importance of, of hydrogen production um and the role that nuclear can play in that um as well as in all the the other areas that we've discussed in terms of um um you know bringing forward a very uh, low carbon power and affordable power yeah well i'll i'll start here by just saying that you know the the emphasis really within the sort of climate and energy discourse over the last couple of decades has has been on the electricity sector which currently represents about 20% about a fifth of our energy consumption um and it's for good reasons you know because there's opportunities to electrify um, and there's um, opportunity. There's been a sort of low-hanging fruit opportunity to to clean up our, our power sector. But increasingly, as we as we sort of move our attention to the larger decarbonisation um, challenge, um, there's there's real um, there really aren't very credible viable pathways to decarbonise um, other sectors like industry 
um, heavy transport um, and heat, for example. So, um, so hydrogen is enjoying a resurgence as being um, recognized as a very important decarbonization tool, either as an end use product in itself, potentially um, in our gas networks, for example. Right now, we could probably put about 20% hydrogen into our gas networks without needing to upgrade infrastructure. Um, but beyond that, there's an opportunity for hydrogen to be used as a feedstock, which can be used then to make other clean synthetic fuels that that can be more like drop-in substitutes in existing gas turbines, diesel engines, um, and using existing storage transport infrastructure. So, so really the kind of holy grail here is making hydrogen cheaply enough in order to be then used to make those clean synthetic fuels, ammonia or synthetic hydrocarbons. And our analysis suggests that for hydrogen to be used in that way, it needs to cost less than a dollar a kilogram. Right. Uh, that that doesn't sound you know that doesn't sound too difficult. But just to give you a sense, the current technologies um, uh, really can't get lower than about four dollars a kilogram if they were dedicated to hydrogen production, clean hydrogen production. That is. So this is quite a quite a, a lift in order to kind of get hydrogen cheaply enough. And we're interested in the application of nuclear technology for hydrogen production for a few reasons. Firstly, because uh, nuclear is a very power dense technology, so it has a very small footprint, which makes it very, very scalable for um, for the clean energy transition in the liquid fuels market, which is about, by the way, about four times larger than the power sector. So scale and footprint is really going to matter a lot. Secondly, nuclear technology has very high capacity factors, and that really matters a lot when you're attaching it to electrolyzers, um, which is what's used to make the hydrogen. So you don't want to invest in that in that infrastructure and then only use it, um, you know, 50 or 25 percent of the time. You want to really be using it as close to 100 percent of the time as possible in order to get the most value. So nuclear technology can deliver that. And then thirdly, nuclear, of course, produces high temperature heat potentially, especially the sort of next generation high temperature reactors. And that makes for very, very efficient electrolysis, which, again, all contributes, if you combine all of these attributes, contributes towards very, very low cost hydrogen production and potentially at a very large scale. And that really is the kind of magic ingredients for the kind of full clean energy transition that we need to see in the liquid fuels market. Okay. I mean, if 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 there weren't already um, uh, enough positive messages, Leon, that, that that you could put forward in terms of um, uh, promoting the um, the idea of new nuclear, the, the hydrogen uh, story, as Kirsty's just outlined for us, that that plays very well into uh, into into your story and the messages you're you're putting out. It's a, another um, another feather in your cap, if you like, if you can be part of that hydrogen production process. That um, that sounds like we. we we really need it is and i think you know what this really needs is if we're going to have any chance of hitting net zero we do need ambitious creative and and well-planned thinking around it you know there does need to be it's no secret that everybody's looking for a a long-term strategy to hit net zero that enables people to actually then work together to to look at the opportunities to for example at wilvernoid okay you can, although really it's the advanced modular reactors that are going to deliver the, deliver the super high temperature heat, there are opportunities for us to use waste heat from the power station to make electrolysis easier. It could be with a big enough site to co-locate hydrogen um, facilities on site, or you could actually use the existing 
um, electricity connection between Wilvernoeth and Holyhead to pipe electricity into Holyhead, where there happens to be an eco park with a planned biomass facility on it, where there's probably space, deep water uh, facilities, etc., for not just the creation of hydrogen, but also in combination with CO2 from biomass, etc., you can create those synthetic fuels for transport, ship, you know, shipping, aviation, even. And and on Anglesey, you've got the RAF Valley. You know, there's a, a market there for aviation fuels. That all of this kind of strategic thinking needs to, you know, needs to be done. But at the moment, with a, you know, we're focused on delivering our, you know, Wilvernoe power station under the current terms of the DCO. But if we're going to start to really get these synergies in the longer term, we need to be more ambitious in our planning to look at where the, these crossover opportunities are. And that's I mean, isn't that cool to think about. Sorry to interrupt you, but to I think about it. these these new nuclear um, projects as actually being energy service providers, really. So, you know, the fact that that nuclear technology can be so versatile that it can be generating power very reliably, um, dispatchably onto the grid, very cheaply as well, by the way. Um, but also when it's when it's not required to be generating on the grid or it could actually then also be producing hydrogen um, either for storage or for direct use um, applications in our heating networks or indeed for for um, for industry. Um, that's that's a very compelling proposition, which w- within the whole system perspective, which really is only a kind of an emerging perspective now. As I say, I think we've really focused very much on the power sector, and now it's really important that we start to look at um, multiplier effects across the whole energy system. I mean, I think this idea of a whole system perspective is is absolutely the right one, isn't it? And and perhaps that that has been slightly what we've been missing in terms of our energy policy, looking at how mm-hmm. piece A links to point piece B links to point C and and and, and onwards. Um, I mean, we we've been promised an energy white paper for a for a long time now, which perhaps I. Uh, I hoped might um, show some of that that cohesion. Um, we've not we've not seen it yet, and, and I'm sure there are very good reasons for that. Probably due in part to the fact that we've been in lockdown for most of the um, the last six months. But um, uh, do either uh, either of you know anything about what we could expect from this white paper, or or what you'd like to see in the white paper, um, and what the implications of, of that could be? Yeah, well, I think I mean it's it's um, it's long, long anticipated in uh, you know true tradition sometimes of the of government policy papers. But you know there there have been changes in personnel, in general elections, and and not just the, the impact of COVID has not just been on you know causing a sort of a backlog in policy creation in government. It's it's genuinely meant that the energy white paper surely has to be revisited, both in light. Well, two things have changed since they started talking about the white paper. First, the commitment to net zero, and secondly, the impact of COVID. So it's entirely proper that it was given a, a thorough review in the light of those um, you know those new factors to make sure that it is fit for purpose and actually contains uh, some you know, you know actually material direction and decisions from government. So you know who knows? I, I'm if I had a you know a, a working crystal ball, then uh, I'd be in great demand. But uh, I, I would I think it's clear to everybody that the time is coming now for decisions on the future you know um, shape of energy policy and. Yeah. Uh, we're hoping COP26 next year. We've got uh, a number of reasons why the government, I think, is is knuckling down to deciding what, what it is that it wants to do. So we're very much looking forward to that because at the moment, no decision is a decision in and of itself. And I think that realisation has dawned. So we mm-hmm. should, you know, I'm hope, in terms of what I'm hoping to see, it, obviously from 
horizon the nuclear sector's point of view is some meaningful um, decisions being taken about what what it is the government wants and and some of those steps that are required to to achieving it for example the the funding model which is is key atop of our priority list at the moment yeah and yeah i think um you know although despite the sort of political turbulence that we've seen over you know the last sort of 18 months or so um and and before then um I think it's heartening to to see that there has been a kind of consistent um, commitment to um, to our climate change targets. In fact, a strengthening in many ways of our um, climate change targets, with the net zero um, target having been established as well. Um, and obviously, the UK, as Leon said, is is hosting COP twenty six, um, and the world is it will be looking to the UK for its sort of continued leadership on this issue. Um, and um, actually, one of the really important ways in which the UK is demonstrating real leadership um, globally on action on climate change is not only having legally binding targets for net zero by 2050, but actually the pathways by which it will achieve that um, are really outcomes focused and technology inclusive. And that that is very um, that's really really critical because um, the the success metrics. Um, for climate change are really um, carbon intensity of the power generating system and ultimately um, the carbon intensity of the economy as a whole. Um, and often I think we see in other countries um, more technology led targets, you know, 100% renewables. And, and that's not necessarily going to, de- to deliver the outcomes that we need, which is a clean, reliable and affordable energy system. And to the UK's credit, that, you know, that sort of trilemma of clean, reliable and affordable has always really been front and centre in determining energy policy. And long may that continue. And a big piece of that is recognising the important role that that nuclear technology has and and will continue to play, especially with the kind of uh, focus on the broader value proposition beyond the power sector. Yeah. And I think in terms of the sort of broader value propositions, I think as well, it's, it's worth remembering that when when we're talking about net zero in 2050, it's it, it's a, a net zero economy, and there's a lot of talk about the green economy and investment in green jobs, etc. And you know that that's what nuclear has to offer in spades over and above many other um, sort of levers that you could pull in that you know the the employment and the lasting kind of e- economic benefits to the locations where you're building these nuclear power stations are enormous and sustained which um in, if you were if you're looking to transition out of fossil fuels and you're wondering how to retrain people over the longer term who are in the oil and gas sector etc you know then you know the nuclear power sector has an, an awful lot in common and you're you know you're contributing to driving the that green economy that everybody sees as the holy grail and i think i mentioned earlier that uh, you're looking at regional benefits as well you know north wales the economy there um you know is it, it, tourism has been struggling as a result of uh, covid this year uh, it, it, the industries have been closing down on anglesey the the alum, anglesey aluminium was a big employer for many years that's closing down You've, you know there, there is a huge desire to maintain thriving communities and high quality jobs in the north of wales so that people you know who, who love the area and are very proud of it can it can stay there and work there and get high quality jobs there um, into the future and that's you know that's the kind of rebalancing that that nuclear can bring on top of the environmental benefits that go with it i think a lot of people you know, on Anglesey are supportive of Wilver because of those opportunities, you know, as much as they are, you know, uh, aware of the environmental credentials of nuclear. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's on those two levels. Uh, mm. the those, those socioeconomic 
benefits are really critical actually as well and and uh, in addition to you know the important contribution that the gigawatt scale um light water reactors are going to play um in our in our um, energy system um the potential for high temperature reactors to be producing hydrogen is really interesting because when you move away from the sort of traditional utilities based model to a commodities based model you really change the siting constraints so you can have much larger uh, facilities um, because you're producing a commodity that can be stored and transported and even exported so you can produce very large volumes you're not constrained by um, the requirements of the of the grid and the electricity consumer um, and you can also locate those sites um, where you want so you really could be sort of repurposing brownfields former industrial coastal refineries for example um, to host these facilities to produce these commodities uh, for use in the UK or, or elsewhere really targeting um, uh, really targeting all regions of the country um, to host these facilities creating jobs um, and and ac- economic activity you mean smaller advanced reactors along with hydrogen or synthetic fuel production facilities that sort of yeah if you like yeah yeah exactly I think that's a really good point. Um, we've talked a lot today about decarbonisation and zero carbon targets, but um, you know we need to think about the, uh, the potential for, for economic transformation as well mm. as environmental transformation. Um, I think that's a, a really nice place to to leave it. But just before I go, I want to um, borrow Leon's working crystal ball that he, he mentioned um, a few minutes ago, and, and just ask you both in turn very quickly um, what your what's on your wish list for for the remainder of 2020. And into 20, 2021, um, in terms of the the UK nuclear industry, um, I think Leon, I can probably guess what you're going to say, but I'll come to you first. <laughs> well, I, you know, I have to start parochially and say that uh, I I would love to be you know going into twenty twenty one, in a, announcing the opening of a of Horizons headquarters on Anglesey to you know resume the Wilverneth construction um, as uh, you know uh, as number one uh, on my priority list. I think. As a whole, I think we need everybody would dearly love to see the good sentiment that has come from this government in terms of nuclear translate into you know a, sen- a sense of ambition and some of those um, mechanisms that will actually deliver it, so that we can all be you know move on from whether we should be doing this to right how are we going to do what we've decided. Um, that's that's top of the wish list. Fantastic, Kirsty. How about you? Yeah, we we fully support that ambition as well, um, and. You know, if we can if we can pile on the wishes here, then I would really like to see you know a, a commitment to um, to developing the uh, small modular reactors and indeed the high temperature reactors that are also going to help um, provide those additional energy services um, uh, to complement the the variable renewables generation and and the larger gigawatt scale reactors that we'll have on the system as well. Because frankly, we need all the tools. Um, at our disposal and all of these um, should be you know getting started um, in parallel um, so that we're we're standing a chance of achieving the very very ambitious targets um, that we've set um, for 30 years time. 
Indeed. Look, uh, I think that's a very nice way to end it. Um, I, of course, completely agree with, with both of you in terms of, uh, of that wish list. I think as we've discussed today, um, there is an opportunity that, that lies immediately in front of us um, with nuclear of, of, of various size and types and scale. Um, we have targets that we are legally bound to um, and targets that I think are going to be very hard to hit um, without some element of probably fairly significant nuclear development over the coming decades. Um, and, uh, and I think that the opportunity is there to be to be grasped. So um, thank you to my guests, Leon Flexman and Kirsty Gogan. Thank you both for your time. And uh, thank you for listening to the Camargue Strictly Infrastructure podcast. Thank you for listening to this edition of Strictly Infrastructure. Don't forget to subscribe via the usual channels, whether that's Spotify, Google or iTunes. If you have a question or a subject or if you'd like to be featured, you can get in touch with us at podcast at You can follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Kamarg UK to get the latest on upcoming episodes. You can also subscribe to our weekly email update, Policy and Politics, via our website. This podcast was produced and presented by Kamarg the corporate communications agency specialising in infrastructure and the built environment. Thanks for listening and see you next time.